We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Okay, well, we're about to start here. Uh, thank you for um, uh, being a part of our Zoom presentation um, uh, for this Wednesday. Remember, every Wednesday we have our Zoom presentations, especially in the COVID age. Okay. And we are uh, starting at 7.30 uh, and the usual 8 o'clock start, which we've had in the past, we've sort of adjusted and it's going to be from 7.30 from now on. So thank you for those who are tuning in. Um, we're going to talk about a topic of uh, True Pope, False Pope, a wonderful book written by John Salsa and, and, and Robert Sisko, which I mentioned last week that we would have an opportunity to have them both interviewed. Uh, unfortunately, good Robert Sisko, who I've known for a long time, um, is a bit under the weather. So uh, uh, Mr. Salsa is going to take over and uh, help with the answering of a number of questions and giving a presentation on the topic of Sedificantism, but beginning with the notion of ecclesiology, uh, the study of the church, to get the church right, and uh, therefore seeing the errors of Sedificantism with their misunderstandings of the nature of the church. But I want to begin with a prayer, and then we'll do an introduction. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful and enkindle them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost. Grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. The immaculate heart of Mary, Pray for us. Good Saint Joseph, pray, pray for, for us. us. And Saint Mary Magdalene, pray for us. Pray for In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. One of my favorite saints and mystics, which I had mentioned before at the parish, is Saint Miriam of Jesus Crucified. She was orphaned at a very early age and ended up being raised by her aunt and uncle. And although she wished to be a consecrated bride of Christ, her relatives had picked out a future husband for her and asked her to consider this arrangement. But Miriam quickly informed her uncle that she would never marry a natural man. Her uncle first tried to reason with her, but then flew into wild rage when he saw that Miriam would not marry, but would remain a virgin uh, belonging to Christ, her bridegroom. The uncle then beat Miriam, the story goes, and screamed his rage at her and called her disobedient to his order. But this did not change Miriam's mind as she withstood the beatings, the insults hurled at her by her uncle. And as a punishment for her refusal to submit, Miriam's relatives treated her quite badly and became very cold towards her. 
And in her isolation, St. Miriam uh, was turning towards a Muslim servant who helped that family to have him deliver her letter to her home area of Nazareth. For his part, this young man, this young Muslim individual, encouraged Miriam to reveal her personal troubles. He became outraged at her uncle's treatment of her and played upon the mind and feelings of the young girl. And then this young Muslim boy introduced the idea of conversion to Islam as a remedy to all of Miriam's problems. She soon realized the young man's true intentions and this caused her to draw back. She denied his advances and loudly proclaimed her faith in the church of our Lord. Muslims, she cried out, no, never. I am a daughter of the Catholic Church and I hope by the grace of God to persevere until death in the true religion. Her so-called protector, this Muslim young man, furious at being rejected by this young Christian woman, became violent, eyes flashing and with hatred. He lost control and he kicked her to the floor. He then drew his sword and literally slashed her throat. Thinking her dead, he dumped her body, her bloody body, into a nearby dark alley. It happened to be the feast of the Nativity, the birthday of the Blessed Mother, September 8th, 1858. 1858, same year as Lord's. What followed was strange and yet a beautifully moving story, told years later by Saint Miriam to her mistress novice at the Carmelite monastery that she would eventually join. This is what happened. She'd been, her throat had been slashed, left for dead. Then she recounts what happened. A nun dressed in blue picked me up and stitched my throat wound. This happened in a grotto somewhere. I then found myself in heaven with the Blessed Virgin, the angels and the saints. They treated me with such great kindness. In their company were my parents, and I saw the brilliant throne of the Most Holy Trinity and our Lord Jesus in his sacred humanity. There was no sun, no lamp, but everything was bright with light. Someone spoke to me. They said that I was a virgin, but that my book was not finished. She then found herself, St. Miriam did, once again in that grotto with the nun dressed in blue. How long did Miriam remain in the secret shelter? She later spoke about one month in length of time. One day, the unknown nurse, the nun dressed in blue, prepared some soup for her that was so delicious that she greedily asked for more. And all her life, she was to remember the taste of what was ultimately, literally, a heavenly soup. On her deathbed, she was heard to say tenderly, she made me some soup, and such good soup. I have that taste in my mouth and it will last forever. Throughout the rest of her life, Miriam experienced extraordinary things, including miracles, apparitions of her guardian angel, good Saint Joseph, in addition to apparitions of the Blessed Mother herself. She had extraordinary cures of others and herself even, the stigmata and many levitations. And yes, she eventually did become a cloistered Carmelite nun. And at the age of 33 years old, the very age of our dearest Lord, when he passed, St. Miriam, Jesus crucified, died in a, con a convent in Bethlehem that she had helped start. Now, why do I bring up this story of this holy woman, St. Miriam, the Jesus crucified? 
It's because this holy Carmelite nun provides a type. We used that word before in some of our classes. She provides an example of the church herself enduring a great time of trial, followed by a great triumph, a great triumph in an age of peace. Although St. Miriam never lost her baptismal innocence, she was allowed to be possessed by a demon for 40 days. That is, an actual demonic fallen angel was allowed to afflict her to the point of actual possession, even though she was in the state of grace, even though she was a holy mystic at the highest levels of prayer, she was a stigmatist, bearing the wounds of Christ upon her body. But like holy and patient Job mentioned in the inerrant scriptures, St. Miriam of Jesus bore this suffering until the demon's time was up. Her affliction was over, and she experienced a time of great peace, which included being accompanied by a good angel in a very dear, near way for 40 days. Can't we see a type here, a figure of the church experiencing the salt of the gates of hell, being attacked by demons, even seemingly possessed by him to the point that the church is sometimes, for some of us, sometimes unrecognizable, to the point that there has been a spiritual eclipse of the sun, perhaps, as Our Lady of La Salette put it, to the point that we wonder, is there some false church that has somehow taken over? But this possession will come to an end. An age of peace will come to the church as angels and holy men will protect and serve her, allowing her to shine forth in all splendor. I thought that this story would be good for the topic this evening that we begin. There are not two churches. There is not the real traditional church and the false conciliar church. There's not the church of eternal Rome and the church of modernist Rome. There's one church, one true church that's experiencing a passion, a crucifixion, even a betrayal by various Judases. And this is an important place to start for our topic this evening. The error of Sedevacantism, the problem with saying that there has not been a Pope for more than two generations, is really a problem of ecclesiology, not knowing the nature of the church. Sedevacantists do not understand the church, her wonders, her visibility, her hierarchical nature, her indefectibility. And that is why we're going to begin our presentation this evening on ecclesiology, or the study of the church. And I have with us this evening uh, John Salsa, a very learned person, uh, who I'd like to introduce. I was going to obviously have Robert Sisko here as well, but Robert called in and... Um, uh, he's not feeling too well, like I said, under the weather. Uh, so maybe uh, later on this evening, if you have your rosaries as a family, maybe just remember, Robert, that he'll, he'll, he'll uh, be fine uh, uh, and be uh, up and at him again very soon. John Salsa is a cum laude graduate of the University of Wisconsin Law School. This is important because we might talk about jurisdiction and what, what better person to have to talk about jurisdiction than a person who's experienced in the law. A practicing attorney for nearly for over 20 years, Mr. Salsa is also a widely acclaimed Catholic writer and speaker. He's the author of 11 books on the topics of Catholic doctrine, scripture, Fatima, and Freemasonry. Wonderful books, by the way, on Freemasonry, including the popular, quote, The Biblical Basis for 
apologetic series, the Catholic faith, the Eucharist, the papacy, purgatory tradition, published by our Sunday visitor in St. Benedict's Press, his book, The Mystery of Predestination According to Scripture, The Church and St. Thomas Aquinas, is also considered one of the most important contributions to the field. He is a regular columnist in the past for Catholic Family News, the Remnant newspaper, and the Fatima Crusader magazine. He has appeared on radio and television programs throughout the world, including Eternal Word Television Network, EWTN, the Discovery Channel, the Church Militant TV, and has produced a daily apologetic series for Fatima TV called Apologetics 101. And for more information, including books by Mr. Salsa, articles and videos, please see his website at johnsalsa.com. And I have one of his books. This is an important book, uh, True, Pope, True Pope, False Pope. Um, and uh, I, if he were here, I'd have it signed by him, but he's not here. So uh, only virtually. Um, so John, maybe you could tell us, uh, having given your introduction, introduce yourself maybe a bit more, and maybe what caused you to write a book on set of acantism, and do you have plans on maybe doing some more research on this topic? Sure. Thank you, Father. It's my pleasure to be, be with you and your, your viewers. Well, just in the field of Catholic apologetics, you know, we're forced to not only address errors uh, from the Protestants, but even those who call themselves Catholic, uh, because these errors tend to confuse people and potentially draw people out of the Catholic Church. So as an apologist, I thought, you know, I'll do my little part in, in attempting to address some of these errors that were coming from so-called Catholics, which is kind of different, right? Because most of the enemies have been, so to speak, have been those who say we are not Catholic. Uh, but these errors are actually coming from people who profess to be Catholic. Uh, some even attend Catholic masses publicly and yet claim that we don't have a pope and we haven't had a pope since Pius XII. And so, um, you know, it, it evolved from some basic apologetics to actually digging into the research. And I started with actually researching what they were saying. And, and Robert and I talk a little bit of, about this in, in the book, Father. We, we never entertained the thesis as legitimate, uh, but, you know, like, like many people who care about what's happening out in the church today, we wondered you know, whether or why it was wrong. We had to prove to ourselves why it was wrong. And we might say we, we approached it with an open mind. We weren't sure exactly where that was going to lead us. You know, our Catholic sense told us it must be wrong because Christ promised us a church till the end of time. But, you know, we both approached it with an open mind. And in fact, Robert was doing his research independently of mine and we actually, by providence, met when we were both about to complete our works and write two separate books. Mm -hmm. And we decided to, to join forces. And so, you know, that book is, is really the fruit of about 10 years of, of research. Um, and it's been almost five years now, and we're working on a second edition. And it's going to be a, a, an expanded second edition, and I think we're going to make it into three volumes. And so... While the first book, I think, was about 750 pages and 22 chapters, we've actually expanded the first four chapters into about 400 pages uh, of additional material. Um, and what we're finding, you know, from all of these original theology manuals, which we're getting translated from, from the Latin, 
it supports exactly what we said in the book. We're just adding on, we're piling on to the argumentation that we've advanced. Um, and it's been very edifying. And so please all pray for us that we can complete this volume, uh, hopefully by, by the end of the year. We thought we'd have it out by now, but you know, we've, we're swimming in a lot of material right now, but I think it'll be very, very fruitful. So we ask for your prayers. We'll certainly pray for you very much and for Robert and I, uh, because I know that Sinovacantists are not always the most uh, cordial individuals, I guess, when they uh, sort of receive some of your uh, important works. Um, I guess you've received a little bit of backlash, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I, I've, I've never been treated by, you know, you know, as badly as I have at the hands of Sinovacantists. I mean, even in Protestant debates, many times they're, you know, they're gentlemen. Um, uh, that's not to say one error is graver than the other because they're all in error. But, you know, I, I speculate that if in fact Sadibacantism is a mortal sin against the faith, once you lose the faith, you obviously lose the virtue of charity as well. And that should be alarming to those who either are dealing with Sadibacantists or the Sadibacantists themselves. Because it seems to me, Father, and again, this is just my own private opinion of specula speculation, but having been in this fight for so long, it seems to me that, you know, God has fixed a turning point. And the turning point is once you reject the Pope, it appears that something happens. Perhaps he then withdraws. He withdraws his grace because you see a progression. Uh, of people that entertain it, then finally embrace it, then publicly defend it, and on and on and on until they viciously attack the Catholic Church, and they become hardened and bitter and vicious. And I'm not aware of anybody who's been able to renounce those errors and come back to the church and leave a peaceful life in the church. So, you know, if, if rejecting the vicar of Christ is that turning point and God's going to abandon his grace, this is, this is very, very serious. And I think that's why we're treated so viciously, um, because these people truly have lost faith in the church. And when you lose faith, you lose hope and charity as well. That's right. We're going to ask some questions now to John. And uh, for those who might want to type in a few questions uh, that, that John can answer at the end, um, Use that Q&A box, which you can find uh, at the bottom part of uh, your screen. Um, but we sort of began by saying that ecclesiology seems to be the key to understanding some of the errors of Sedevacantism. So, John, if you could just tell us, what is ecclesiology? The study of the church, of course, but more yeah. than that, you know, issues of you know, the properties, the attributes of the church, the marks, and things like that. Sure. As you said, Father, it is, it is the study of the church. And, you know, th this whole study for me has given me a deeper, not only understanding of the church, but a, a deeper and greater love for the church to truly understand both, you know, her human and divine natures, just like our Lord, you know, himself. And it's, it's also helped me to come to terms with the crisis that we're suffering. I mean, you articulated it perfectly. The church right now is suffering a passion. I was even talking to Robert about this yesterday. When we look at the life of our Lord, he lived 33 years and he suffered that passion at the very end of his life, followed by, of course, his glorious resurrection. But 
all of those years before, you know, leading up to that until, until his ministry, right, were hidden. And it was a time of peace and great tranquility. And this is really, you know, the church has suffered, of course, but you can analogize it to, you know, some of the years of the church where she had her infancy, she had her adolescence, right? And now there's this continuum where now maybe we are entering into, as our Lord says, the beginning of sorrows, which will ultimately precede Antichrist and suffering this passion, because the passion she's suffering now is unlike anything we've ever seen. It's truly a mass hypostasy. And I, I think it's the penultimate chastisement. Obviously, the time of Antichrist will be the ultimate chastisement. But what follows that, of course, what follows that is, is the resurrection. And since we are in Christ's mystical body and he set it up, we would expect the church to have an infancy, a childhood, an adolescence, a passion, and a resurrection. And so all of that kind of gives me chills when I talk about it, but it really is a beautiful context to understand what we're going through right now. We're living in a privileged time. We're living in a time of great grace. Even though there's great suffering, there's also great grace. And I think it's going to depend upon how much we pray um, to, to, to put an end to this suffering and this, and this crisis. But I think if people understand it in that context, they won't be as scandalized. They won't be as scandalized. Right. I'm glad you, you mentioned that, that we, we live the life of Christ. In a sense, the church is the continuation of the incarnation. And we go through the, the stages that, that the members of the church go through the stages that he went through. Yeah. Uh, obviously, his hidden life, as John said, and uh, obviously it's like the monastic life, right? The beginning, yeah. Anthony in the desert. And, uh, and of course, obviously, uh, uh, sort of the, the, the ministerial and the you know, public ministry, you know, the apostolic life. And so the right. church does all those things. But then her passion and death, just like Christ, and, and obviously her resurrection. She'll have various resurrections, various passions throughout her history. But as John is saying, it seems to be a, a particularly... Um, uh, 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 t time in which is really coming out more. And, um, and it's, it's the time of Our Lady of Fatima, too, right? I mean, I, I do believe and have written about this that I think the that great resurrection will occur when Russia is consecrated to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart and union with all the bishops of the world, and there will be a restoration. I, I just don't think it's going to be until that happens because that's when Our Lady triumphs. I mean, the triumph of of Our Lady is the triumph of Christ and the triumph of His His resurrection. So. That is the time in which we live, and um, it's edifying. Um, we're privileged to live in this time, but we need to persevere. We need to persevere. Wonderful. Now, in terms of some of the attributes um, of the church, especially in regards to how maybe Sedevacantus sort of seemed to get this wrong, yeah. her visibility, for example, her infallibility, uh, yeah. her indefectibility. Could, could you go through some of those terms with us? Sure. So when we talk about the attributes, these are inherent characteristics of the church and which allows Christ's church to exist and to endure until the end of time. Um, and that the church is also known to be the true church of Christ until the end of time. That's very important. And you mentioned visibility, I think, first, Father, so I can I'd start there. Um, when we say that the church is visible, we're not simply talking about the fact that she has visible members because the non-Catholic sects also have visible members. So we're not talking about just material 
visibility. Material visibility means the matter that we see. The theologians say there's also formal visibility. And the formal visibility is not just what we see as the matter, but the form, what we know we're seeing. Okay. Form of formal visibility means that we will know when we see the church that that is the true church of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that the Catholic Church is not just a group of human beings with physical bodies, but it's actually a legal hierarchical structure, a visible social unit constituted by a pope and his bishops, his priests, his deacons, religious, and laity. You see, so visibility doesn't just concern the individual visible members, but actually, as the theologians say, this visible social unit by which we know that it is the true church of Jesus Christ, because it's only the Catholic church that has that hierarchical structure, you see. So that's very important to understand visibility. Now, we quote in our book from Sadie Vacantis, who say, well, because we don't have a pope anymore, and almost all of them say we don't have bishops anymore, they're forced to embrace the Protestant definition of visibility. They know that the church has always taught that she will be visible, but how do, so how do they get around this? They say, well, the Catholic Church is made up of true believers, okay? And those true believers will exist until the end of time. Not that the visible social unit will exist until the end of time. And we can quote them verbatim, but they literally say that, that the true church is made up of true believers without regard to the visible social unit. Why? Because they reject that visible social unit. They say it doesn't exist and it's an imposter unit, you see? So that is where they err on the notion of visibility that completely perverted the understanding of visibility. So they, they share things in common with Martin Luther then you would say. Yeah. Yes. We quote from the Protestant Westminster Confession where they say visibility means that the true faith will reside in the hearts of true believers until the end of time. This is precisely what the state of Vicantis say. And we quote from them saying it. It's identical. There's a book called Preservative Against Pulpery, I think, which was written toward the late 19th century, another Protestant book, and it says the same thing. And we almost think the Sadie Vicantis are quoting from these, these manuals because they're saying exactly what the Protestants have said. It's, it's striking that, you know, they, they, they come off as these learned apologists, and yet it doesn't appear that they've read any kind of Catholic theology manuals because all the theology manuals make this distinction between the visible members who have faith and the visible structure, the, the social unit, the hierarchy, that must always exist until the end of time. Right. Uh, you also mentioned fallibility, um, that charism, uh, the, the church, but also like, the Pope and yes. some extraordinary circumstances, obviously the bishops in union with the Pope too. Could you go through a little bit of fallibility and maybe where a set of acanthists maybe get this a bit wrong and then maybe even where the more uh, I guess those more liberal Catholics even also get it wrong regarding maybe extending infallibility beyond where it should go. That, that's, that's interesting how you, you posited that because we actually make that same uh, comparison in, in our book. It's, it's interesting that the more liberal minded, and if you want to be nice, we say the conservative Catholics, if you will, 
they actually have the same major premise as the state of a contest, which is, you know, everything that the Pope does is true and good and must be infallible, therefore, because the Pope is infallible. So anything that the Pope teaches has to be true. It has to be good because the Pope is infallible. This is what the liberal Catholics believe. This is what the state of the conscious believe. Okay, so their major premise is the same. And there's a defect in that major premise, but the major premise is the same. Their minor premise is different, though. The minor is for the, the liberal Catholics is because these reforms of Vatican II came from the Pope, therefore, they must be infallible, whereas the state of the Consus will say, because the, these reforms are evil in themselves, they could not have come from a true Pope, you see? So they use the same major premise, their minor is different, and then they, reach, they both reach erroneous conclusions because of the, the, the defect in the major. The defect in the major is, is that not everything the Pope says or does is infallible. Uh, that's not only the teaching of the church, it's common sense. Um, He's not impeccable. Uh, the Vatican, the first Vatican Council actually gave us the parameters under which the Pope exercises his invalibility, and they're very narrow parameters. When the Pope is acting on his own authority uh, as the universal pastor of all, of all Catholics, of all Christians, and he wills to define a doctrine on faith or morals to be believed as a matter of salvation, to be believed as a matter of divine and Catholic faith by the universal church, okay? So he has to be defining a doctrine. He has to be binding the faithful to that. In that limited circumstance, the Holy Ghost prevents the Pope from erring, okay? It's a, neg we'd call it a negative charism. It's if the Pope can't go off the rails when he's exercising uh, that charism, it's not habitual, okay? Uh, so not everything the, pa the Pope says on, on the papal airplane is infallible, right? Not, and not every Wednesday audience uh, address it, it is infallible. Now, of course, the Pope, and you, you know, with the bishops, can teach infallibly another way, and that's through the ordinary and universal magisterium, whenever the Pope repeats what has been taught by all, all and always and everywhere. And so that's different. But when the Pope is acting on his own, speaking what, we, what the church says, ex cathedra, right, from the chair, teaching as the universal pastor of all Christians, he must be defining a doctrine on faith or morals. Otherwise, he is susceptible to error. See, so the major premise has to be corrected to say, when the Pope is doing what the First Vatican Council defined. Only then is he infallible. Otherwise, he's susceptible to error. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to error. In fact, before you know Vatican II, uh, one can say most of what the popes have taught, even ordinarily or even off the cuff, at least authentically, you know, there 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 weren't. A whole lot of errors, although we can tell you there were some. We found many pre-Vatican II errors, um, but for the most part, when you're looking over 1960 years, you know, this is a novelty. I mean, the errors that have come out uh, in recent times is truly unique. It, it, it's truly uh, something that's unprecedented. But this is the false understanding of infallibility. So, so if you misunderstand infallibility, you can see how they're concluding that these can't be true popes. Because if the pope is giving us evil and giving us error, they conclude he can't be a true pope. But 
the majors wrong. They didn't, they right. didn't define those strict parameters. Right. So obviously sometimes we use that phrase earlier that, uh, when we were talking before the broadcast, creeping infallibility, where all of a sudden this charism, which is very narrow, becomes broadened to everything that the Pope does. And this, obviously for Sedevacantists, they jump at that. How could he be the Pope? He, you know, he prayed with pagans. Yeah. Or how could he be the Pope? Uh, he, he, uh, he had liturgical dancers before, his, uh, before the throne or whatever. Right. Um, so, uh, but I guess indefectibility is another thing that you mentioned as mm. a property, an uh, attribute. The fact that, you know, the church is going to be there to the end and she's not going to essentially change her structure that is in place. So explaining ineffectability just a bit, and then maybe, again, where a set of acantists may deny that very essential attribute of the church. Sure, and that attribute of indefectibility can be best understood uh, uh, by saying that the church will always have her four marks. Okay, that's why she's indefectible. She's always going to be one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. She can't lose any one. You lose one, you lose them all. They will always exist until the end of time. Of course, the fact that she's visible in, until the end of time, the fact that she has infallibility until the end of time, all participate in this attribute of indefectibility. But indefectibility really means that we will always know where the true church is. And that church will always exist until the end of time. And we know it's the true church by virtue of those marks that she's one, she's holy, she's Catholic and apostolic. And so indefectibility pertains to those four marks always existing in the Catholic church by which she will be known and endure until the end of time. Would you say that it also, I guess maybe part of the apostolic mark, hmm. There's, there will always be a, a true hierarchy. There will always be a, a pope or his successor. There might be obviously periods of sedevacantism, you know, obviously a few months, yeah. maybe a year. Um, but would you say that that's also an indefectible sort of, or, or an example of indefectibility? Yeah, yes. And have her bishops, her constitution, which Christ gave her in terms of leadership. Definitely, Father. Um, when Christ gave the Great Commission, he told the apostles to, to, you know, to, to preach the gospel and to baptize and to command them to believe everything that I've taught you. What, you. what you have there is you have preaching, you have sanctifying, and you have governing. Okay, This is exactly what the bishops do, and this is what the priests do as they participate in the mission of the bishops. And so um, part of that is, of course, the authority to legitimately do those things, okay? And to, to have the authority to do them, you must be sent. That's why we call this the Great Commission. You know, co meaning with and mission is where we get the word Great Commission. This is Christ's mission, but now he's giving it to the apostles, and they, you know, through the laying of hands, are giving it to their successors and their priests. And so that is fundamental to the church as, as Christ built his church upon St. Peter the Rock and then the other apostles in, in union with Peter, they will always have the authority, the legitimate authority to, to preach, to sanctify and govern uh, so long as they're sent. But the church teaches that not just everybody who claims is sent is sent. There has to be both 
the consecration of bishops or the laying on of hands, as well as what we, the church calls a canonical mission, that you are not only endowed with these powers, if you will, um, to perform the acts of teaching and sanctifying and governing, but you're legitimately and lawfully deputized to do so by a superior. And this is where the notion of canonical mission comes into play. So we will always have that until the end of time. And that deals with, with Father, the, the mark of apostolicity, uh, as you mentioned. And I, I might want to clarify that uh, just, just a little bit more. Um, the, can you still see me? Yes, yes, yeah, I can. Okay, I, I just I lost you, so I can't see you. Oh, there you are. Um, uh, uh, there are uh, there are, there is a distinction to make with respect to apostolic succession. As I mentioned, uh, there is a material component, which is the laying on of hands. The apostles laid hands on their successors; they became bishops, and they did it. So we have a lineage of all the bishops of the world being able to trace their pedigree, if you will, back to the apostles. That would be called material succession. But that is insufficient to be lawfully sent, uh, to have a canonical mission. In order um, to be a legitimate successor of the apostles, you not only need to be consecrated, okay, the material aspects of succession, uh, but you need to have a canonical mission. You need to be formally sent. You need to be deputized by a lawful authority. If that weren't the case, then you know, some of these renegade bishops that we see roaming, you know, the world would be legitimate successors of the apostles. They are not legitimate successors. They may be validly consecrated, but they have not been sent. It's important to note that all jurisdiction, of course, comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. It's given directly to the Pope when he accepts the papacy and he's joined to the papacy. He receives the full plenitude of jurisdiction over the universal church and the bishops received their jurisdiction only from the Pope. They received jurisdiction from the Pope alone. This is the very clear teaching of the church. It was taught repeatedly by Pius XII, as recently as Pius XII and Mystici Corpus Christi and Ad Apostolorum Principis. Uh, it's a well-settled definitive teaching of the church that the bishops get their jurisdiction only from the Pope, you see. So, that, that's important to understand whether someone is a legitimate successor to the apostles. The Sede Vacantist error, of course, is they know that their bishops have not received their jurisdiction from the Pope. That's a big problem. So how do they get around it? Well, not too well. Um, they say that they either get it directly from Christ himself, or some say they get it by virtue of the consecration, okay? Clearly, th that's never been taught by the church. The church is clear that during the act of consecration or laying on of hands, the man who's consecrated a bishop receives those powers, but they remain in potency. They are not activated until that bishop has a canonical mission from the Holy Father. If he does not have a canonical mission, Pius XII is clear. He has no right to preach, to sanctify, to govern. That bishop has no right to go into any Catholic church and even preach. So, so, have, so he mean. might have the sacramental character, obviously. He's been consecrated as a bishop. Right. But the, the idea of the canonical mission, which you mentioned, the actual exercise of that in yeah. a legitimate fashion, is, it may not be there. Yes, and that's why their position is so dangerous. And 
you know, if you study history, what the Sedevacantists are arguing today is nothing new. This is what the Protestants argued many years ago. They said the same exact thing. They recognized that their clerics did not have any jurisdiction from the Pope. So what did they say? They say, well, by virtue of our ordinations, we're receiving it directly from Christ. It's exactly what the Sedevacantists say. Or they're saying, by virtue of our ordinations, we have it. Mm-hmm. But again, the church has always had a distinction between canonical mission and jurisdiction, even jurisdiction. So there's consecration, there's the material aspect, then there's the formal aspect with canonical mission. And in some cases, a priest needs more than just a canonical mission. In some cases, he also needs jurisdiction or faculties to perform specific acts as well, sacramental acts and acts of governance. The Seba contests don't have any of them. And so they've had to invent the theories of why they can operate the way they do. Right. And I think, you know, as a priest, it's part of my life every day. Um, I mean, I, I, I actually got a, I was installed as a pastor. Uh, Bishop came, installed me, and obviously gave me a letter, uh, therefore granting me a, a, a moral jurisdiction over the folks that are here at our parish. Mm. Um, and I always tell people, remember when a priest offers Holy Mass, he has a cross stole, um, showing that in some way he's, he has ordination. He can offer Mass. He can do confessions. He's got the sacramental power within him, but he's also bound up a bit. Mm-hmm. Therefore, he has to get faculties from the bishop to receive that loosening where he can go to the confessional or and, and, I, and I do a lot of retreats. I was just out on the road just last weekend. Before I went, a letter was sent from the chancellor of my diocese to the chancellor of the other, other diocese. Of course. Of course. And, and, you know, and John, I'll tell you, is that even though, you know, uh, a, a lot of good people, you know, speak, you know, for the church, whether it's, you know, going to give a retreat conference, you know, good laymen and so forth. With a priest, there's something even more special, I think, because he is sent there. Yeah. And I, there's some spiritual reality there that, that there's a grace that comes with the priest. Obviously, he has the faith, uh, but, but he's sent officially by the church. In a sense, the Holy Ghost, who moved our Lord's sacred humanity, is moving the church, and all of a sudden, that we've been sent. So there's, there's great power in that. But, John, if you could, because you, you have a law background, so... What is jurisdiction? I mean, for, for like y- using terms that perhaps people can can understand a bit. Uh, and why does a priest or or bishop need this from the pope? Right. Well, to to put it very simply, jurisdiction is the ability or power for someone to legitimately exercise authority over another person. That's really what jurisdiction is. So you mentioned in your case, um, the fact that the bishop is able to appoint priests to dioceses is an act of governance. He's exercising an authority over the priests by virtue of his jurisdiction. Um, The priest who hears confessions, that priest is exercising authority over the penitent because the priest is judging the sin, he's judging the contrition, and he's mandating a penance. And so in cases where uh, a priest or bishop is required to exercise authority over someone else, that's a pretty serious thing. And therefore the church has built in this safeguard that 
there needs to be something additional there, and that's jurisdiction. And that comes from, in general, it comes from a superior. Uh, a, a priest who has a canonical mission receives his jurisdiction from the Pope, and the priests under him participate in that jurisdiction. We would say that you had faculties which participates in the, pre, in the bishop's jurisdiction uh, to hear confessions. Um, so it's a built-in safeguard because with, without jurisdiction, you know, hell could literally break loose. And, and I wasn't planning on getting into this. I'll, I'll mention it briefly, though, because you emphasize the importance of it, that, you know, letters were sent, you know, from one diocese to another. I would caution, you know, Catholics who, you know, maybe, you know, have priests that are independent that may be ministering to them. Um, we're aware that, you know, groups roam around the country, they may have conferences, they may have all good intentions, but you should really find out if that priest is deputized and authorized to hear confessions by the bishop in the diocese in which he purports to exercise his ministry. Because if he doesn't, all those confessions are invalid. They're invalid. Um, we can talk about supply jurisdiction in a, in a, in a little bit, but the, the, in general, uh, without the permission, you know, acts of governance and sacramental acts requiring the exercise of authority over individuals is very serious. And, you know, I've, I've heard sermons and I've read some of the spiritual masters who have actually said that where a priest attempts to appropriate authority uh, that he does not legitimately have and attempts to exercise that authority over an individual, um, it opens up both the priest and the victim to demonic attacks. Right. This is just how God has established it in the objective spiritual order. Um, this, in fact, is why Protestants who often attempt exorcisms and they have no authority to do that ultimately, you know, often get possessed themselves. So this matter of jurisdiction is extremely serious. And there's a reason why, you know, the church since the time of Christ and Christ established jurisdiction, this comes all from our, our Lord Jesus Christ, why it is so important and why it's relevant to the topic we're talking about, who is a legitimate successor to the apostles. You probably know you're very versed in scripture. I guess it's probably the Acts of the Apostles where some fellows who uh, uh, were, were, were Christian, uh, they were trying to uh, uh, exorcise some demon within mm -hmm. another, within a victim. And, uh, you know, they were trying to act like St. Paul. St. Paul was, you know, casting out demons everywhere. And the demons said to them, Paul, I know, but who, who are you? Ah, yeah. I mean, Paul, and maybe we could, Get into that too, because we spoke about before we broadcast the mm. extraordinary mission issue. Mm. Paul did have an extraordinary mission. Our Lord came to him directly, you know, chose him as an apostle. But even then, eventually he went to Peter. He, he did go to, uh, and he was sent off with Barnabas and others officially. There, there, there is a sending, both by Christ, but also even by the church. So maybe you could, the claims being made, extraordinary uh, emergency situations, supply jurisdiction, uh, or I don't need jurisdiction because I'm sent on a mission from God, you know? Yeah. How would you answer those claims from? It's very, it's very simple uh, and, and yet not so simple, but I'll try to simplify it. Um, all jurisdiction comes um, from Christ, but ultimately from Christ through the Pope into the bishops. That's the ordinary way in which jurisdiction is spread throughout the church. There's another way that 
jurisdiction could sometimes be exercised, uh, and it is when the church herself supplies jurisdiction. That happens, Father, in very limited circumstances, and the code of canon law has, has foreseen what circumstances that those could be. For example, if you're ministering to someone in danger of death, okay, even an excommunicated priest, uh, because of the mercy of God in the church, can both legitimately and lawfully and validly administer confession, extreme unction in, in that case. Um, there, there's another way, and I'll, I'll get to your question on extraordinary mission in, in a bit. There's another way that the church could supply jurisdiction, and that's with this notion of common error. And to make this very simple, this is, this is really misunderstood, even among traditional Catholics. Common error means that the Catholic community in question would believe that the priest ministering has ordinary jurisdiction, has ordinary faculties. That's a distinction that has not been met, uh, has not been, I think, articulated on many fronts today. Um, if a priest comes into a diocesan church and the faithful are typically there every Saturday afternoon for confession, uh, the faithful would presumably believe that that priest was sent legitimately because that priest is coming into a diocesan church. They would believe that that priest had an ordinary faculty. However, if you're at an independent chapel, not in union with the local bishop, would the Catholic community conclude that that priest had ordinary faculties? The answer is no. Okay, and that's why common error doesn't apply uh, in many cases where some traditional Catholics think it does apply, and it's very serious. Um, but putting supply jurisdiction aside for a moment, having established that jurisdiction comes ordinarily through the Pope to the bishops, there's also something called extraordinary mission. And the church has said, uh, and I can quote from Pope Benedict XIV, I can quote St. Francis de Sales and, other, and others, who's a doctor of the church. They've said that where a minister would come forth who hasn't been sent by the local bishops, Benedict XIV said, let him show miracles, otherwise reject him. Now, he also says, let him either be uh, testified to in scripture or let him show miracles. Now, of course, today's modern clerics are named. John the Baptist was testified to in scripture, and that's what our Lord, that's why our Lord said he's legitimate, because he wasn't performing miracles, but he had a testimony in scripture. But Pope Benedict XIV, among others, have said, let him prove miracles, otherwise you must reject him. And in fact, the Pope says they must be canonically approved miracles. So there's no such thing as an extraordinary mission outside of the ordinary mission of the church, right? It's only extraordinary because it didn't come through from the bishop, but it came through by virtue of the miracles, which by the way, the bishop would have to approve anyway, you see? But it's still extraordinary because it's accompanied by miracles and it's not effectuated in, in the ordinary way. Um, St. Vincent Ferrer is a great example, and I, 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 I laugh when Sadovacantists use him uh, as, as an example, because they brag about, here's a guy who didn't have, you know, a canonical mission from the Pope or any bishop, and look, and he did all these miracles, where are yours? Where are yours, see? So, you know, they, they kind of put their foot in their mouth when they, when they you know, 
refer to saints who had these extraordinary missions. But um, that is, you know, that's without much precedent in, in the church. We see it from time to time, but in the ordinary way, right? You have to be in union with your bishop, who's in union with the Pope, in order to be sure that you're receiving legitimate and valid sacraments. Right. So there really is no, I'm on a mission from God outside the church. Ultimately, ecclesiology tells you the church is going to be involved with these things, even if God were to appear, yes. to give a special charism to somebody, a gift. It's going to be authenticated by the church. It's going to be because we know that the devil can do pseudo-miracles, right? I mean, he has, and his demons have a lot of uh, power over matter, and they can make things look miraculous that really aren't. So the church is very cautious when it comes to that. But this is coming from, from the Pope himself, from Pope Benedict XIV and, and, and many others. So uh, this is important because the state of the contests, you know, have acquiesced to the fact that they don't have ordinary jurisdiction. In fact, they say the church no longer has ordinary jurisdiction. Many of them say that, which again, denies all of the marks and all of the attributes. But why this is relevant, Father, is they're now actually appealing to extraordinary mission without using that terminology. They're saying by virtue of our priests' ordinations and by virtue of the crisis in the church, and some of them even sprinkle in supply jurisdiction, but they don't apply it properly. They'll say, we have an extraordinary mission and therefore we're, we're legitimate. Well, guess what? The church has already dealt with this. The church has already thought about these things. The saints and doctors and popes have already said when and only when we can receive somebody who hasn't been sent by the bishop. And that's one who has miracles that have been approved by the bishop or by the pope or by the pope. Thank you, John. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to ask one more question, if that's okay. Um, and then we'll take some questions from our people who've been viewing. Um, when I, this area that we're in, and people who are viewing this broadcast know the area. Um, we had a lot of people who wanted to keep the faith during the late 60s, the 70s, the 80s. They fought hard. They found priests who were, I mean, they had the faith, and they, at least, you know, materially, they had the faith that they believed, they saw the threat that was happening with modernism and uh, a lot of revolutionary changes. So people gravitated to them, even though they seemingly were sort of away from their bishops and eventually maybe even cut themselves off completely. Now, in my mind, maybe you could touch on this. I think it's a complete loss of hope on these people's parts because it seems like they really thought the church had failed. It was no longer indefectible. It had failed, it had changed. We carry on the true church. We have the marks of the church. This independent chapel down the road, we have one true, one holy Catholic and apostolic. So could you touch upon that the, the virtue of hope is perhaps, I know I, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but yeah. the virtue of hope may be being one of the things that's truly been lost in some people where they literally have given up. Yes. Yeah. Well, belief in the church is an act of supernatural faith. Okay. It is an object of, of faith, of supernatural faith. It's not just something that we believe by nature because the church is divine. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not just human, it's divine. It's, it's a matter of faith. And 
like I said before, Father, when one rejects the church, and that's what they're doing, they're saying that the Catholic Church that Christ has constituted, who has the marks of one holy Catholic and apostolic, no longer exists, um, at least in the Pope and the bishops and practically the entire world who acknowledges that it, that it does. And so in, in doing that, I believe they've lost the virtue of faith. And by losing the virtue of faith, they've lost hope and charity as well. That mm -hmm. all goes out the window once you reject the church. And it all, it's all about the church and the Pope and being united to him. I mean, there's a reason why Pope Boniface and Pope Eugene and others said, and there's no salvation unless you're united to Peter. Okay, what does that mean? Believing that we have a Pope and we're united to him. They don't believe we have a Pope. And therefore, they're not united to him. And if they're not united to him, they don't hold the faith. And if they don't hold the faith, they've lost hope, unfortunately. Yes, and I think... I think we could take a lot of what John said, especially when he mentioned that his research that he's done and this topic, and this has been for a number of years now, has caused me to love the church even more. And when you think about the saints of old, they loved Rome. And Rome has always had its issues. I mean, St. Philip Neri, who was from Florence, when he moved to Rome, he would kneel outside of his balcony and he would kneel towards Rome praying for Rome, but also just appreciating. This, this is the city of martyrs. This is the city of Peter and Paul shed, shedding their blood. And yeah. I think if we can love the church, believe that our Lord is going to use whatever weak instruments, if he worked through Caiaphas and Annas and Pontius Pilate, he can certainly work through even our present Holy Father, God bless him. Yeah. So hope and, you know, love and love the church and uh, okay, so here's some of the questions, John, if it's okay. Sure. The first one is actually uh, just about uh, where I got some of that stuff on St. Miriam. So, Father Shannon, is there a book or resource where we can learn more about St. Miriam and Jesus crucified? Now, Father, uh, Father Sean, who I work with, can, can definitely give you uh, uh, the actual uh, uh, book that he used to get some of the, that, some of the information, but there is... A website called the Mystics of the Church. Uh, I think it's mysticsofthechurch.com or something, which has a lot of lives and miracles of many of the uh, more extraordinary saints, including Saint Miriam of Jesus Crucified. This is one here, John. I'm sorry if I missed this. Cardinal Hoyos, Bishop Schneider, et al., have stated the SSPX are not in schism. Well, uh, not set of a cantus, but rather in an irregular canonical union. Many traditionalists state emphatically that the SSPX are sedes and in schism. Please comment and help sort this out for me. Thank you. So the SSPX versus the sedes, obviously there's a big distinction. There. Oh, of course. The, say, the, the, the Society of St. Pius X priests and bishops are not set of a cantus. Uh, of course they're not. They recognize the Holy Father, although unfortunately, uh, Seda Bacantis sprung from that group. I mean, they left the society and, and became Seda Bacantis. So, uh, but, but they don't stand for Seda Bacantis at all. In fact, they were the publisher of our, our book, our, 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 first, uh, our first book, which is against Seda Bacantis. So um, there's, there's been debates about their, their canonical situation. We know that John Paul II, you know, declared that what Archbishop, Archbishop Lefebvre did was a, a schismatic act. Um, there have been debates, though, about, about that. Um, 
as recently as Cardinal Burke in 2017. He, he did say that the society's in, in, in schism. What I, what I will say, though, is that while the bishops do not have a canonical mission, they themselves will admit that they don't have a canonical mission. They weren't sent by the Holy Father. Thank God Pope Francis has granted the priests and bishops of the society the, the delegated faculties to hear confessions. And also, um, with the cooperation of the local bishops to, to witness marriages. Um, this is, to my knowledge, one of the only times in the history of the church, and I can think of maybe only one other, where priests without canonical mission were granted faculties um, uh, that would allow them to exercise jurisdiction in limited circumstances, which is a wonderful sign because I, I know and respect uh, many of these priests, uh, their hearts are in the right place, and I do hope and believe that this is a portent for, for a, a full reconciliation, to put this mess aside, because it's been too long. It's been too long. They're doing a lot of good. Um, they've got seminaries, they've got schools, they've got chapels throughout the world, and, you know, as tough as things have been under Pope Francis, he's actually made this gesture. Um, right. So I think it's encouraging, and we want to pray for a, a full and complete reconciliation, if that's what you want to call it, so that we don't have to talk about these canonical issues anymore. So that's, that's my hope and prayer. That's well said, John. And of course, this is John's book along with Robert Sisko, and of course, the foreword is done by Bishop Filet. Uh, so obviously, this, the SSPX is very concerned about Sedificantism, because they know that you know, there, there's a tendency that, you know, people can fall prey to that who are a bit distant from, let's say, the more, more regular union. And as John said, too, remember that these are good priests, but, you know, you're taking a bit of a chance when you start exercising um, a, a canonical mission when you don't actually have one. Um, so I think they do want, we, we want this to heal, uh, heal everybody. Okay. Um, Someone uh, writes, John, I'm a little confused on the role of the Pope in our ecclesiology, the study of the church. Would we say that a local church, a diocese with its local bishops, is the full church, and that each diocese are full churches in themselves? That's a good question, because this, this yeah. is actually a debate that has been going on for years. Sure. Arnold Casper was talking. So, example, one diocese plus another diocese equals two full churches. Because well, it you know, my, my thought on this is, is that it's, 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 you know, church with a little C, and the Catholic Church is the church with, with the big C. You know, frankly, I think that's how you would look at it. I mean, all diocesan churches and C's and even the patriarchs and, 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 and their C's in, in the East all participate in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So we're all members of that one body, that one moral body, and that one legal uh, structure, which is, is the Catholic Church. So you can say in a sense, yeah, that diocesan church is the Catholic Church. Of course it is the true Catholic Church. But we can also say that it's uh, a component of the larger Holy Mother Church, if you will. Right. I think it's well said. Like Sometimes that is a Holy Mother Church and the church uh, uh, of a diocese is, is the daughter. Like, so there's... Yeah. So. This one is a good one, John. It, it might be too much for tonight, but um, maybe a quick look at it. How was Francis's declaration on the immorality or inadmissibility is the word I like to use of the death penalty 
not reach the level of fallibility. It appears he intended to define morals by requesting to be included in the future edition of the Catechism, and it seems he intends all Catholics to believe this, but this would change church teaching, which we know cannot happen. Right. Remember what I said, the Pope has to define a doctrine on faith or morals, and there is no definition in that teaching. Right there, you know that it can't be protected by the charism of infallibility. Not, it's not even close, okay? These are musings, I would say, of the Pope, um, and certainly the Holy Ghost is never going to allow the Pope to bind the church, the universal church, to error. So the fact that there's no definition there tells you right away. And that's what I would say to all the people who are critical, and rightly so, of some of the things in the Second Vatican Council. The fact that there's no definition of ecumenism, and there's no definition of religious liberty, and there's really no definition of, uh, of, of collegiality, etc., shows that the Pope wasn't intending to define everything. I mean, go back and, and, and read the, the definitions of, of uh, the Immaculate Conception by Pius IX and the Assumption by Pius XII. He specifically defines those doctrines and what they mean and the parameters of those doctrines. There's nothing like that with respect to the Pope's um, comments on the death penalty. Yeah, and I think that uh, we talked a lot about that in the parish uh, over the years, and uh, I mean, even Cardinal Ratzinger years ago said one can obviously be at odds with the Holy Father regarding this matter because sure. obviously traditions on our side. Um, even our Lord himself in the Gospel of Luke, you know, said, tell the civil authorities to slay those people who haven't accepted right. our Lord himself from his very mouth. So it's always been, you know, the, uh, legitimate, uh, legitimately exercised the death penalty has always been, you know, a part of what we understood to be. Uh, that the church has acknowledged that, that there are there are certainly just and legitimate ways that it could be carried out. That's right. What is a set of Acanthus position, John, on Fatima and the messages given afterwards to Sister Lucia, including Our Lady's request for the consecration of Russia? If there's no Pope, think about it. That's, I guess, a good question. Well, it's one of the apologias I use. I mean, when Our Lady was talking to the three seers, she always referred to the Holy Father. It's the Holy Father will have much to suffer. The Holy Father is going to suffer this. The Holy Father must do the consecration after the Holy Father does the consecration, right? So Our Lady is referring to this period of time of suffering in the church, and yet that we would have a Holy Father available to do the consecration. You know, the state of the contest, some of them, uh, they believe different things about Fatima. Some believe that Pius XII did the consecration uh, back during uh, his pontificate in 1952, um, the only problem with that is he didn't consecrate Russia in union with all of the bishops of the world, and Russia hasn't converted to the Catholic faith. So it's hard to say that Pius XII actually carried it out. Uh, they want to say that so that they can say we don't need a pope to do the consecration anymore because it's already done. And by the way, we don't have any popes anymore, you see. So they're always inventing ways to get around the fact that, or to get around their theory that we don't, their false theory that we, we don't have a pope. Um, some will simply say, of course, we'll have a Holy Father to do the consecration because only a true Pope could do the consecration. And when that happens, then we'll know. But until then, we believe we don't have a Pope. So they, they believe different things. And of course, that leads to a lack of hope, doesn't it? Huh? Talk about uh, yeah. no, no promise of certain age of peace uh, when there's no Pope to consecrate Russia. So um, someone asked again, I won't go into this because we answered it a bit, but again, that local church and the sort of Church of Rome and so forth. And I think that to understand there's a universal church, 
And the universal church is going to be the sort of life giver to the local individual particular church mm -hmm. that would be below it. So it's not a confeder confederation of equal sort of churches. It's a mother-daughter relationship where Mother Rome is going to be giving life. The yeah. universal church is giving life to the local ordinary, uh, excuse me, the local particular church, as they sometimes say. Yeah, that's good, Father. That's exactly the terminology that they use. They even use that terminology to, to refer to uh, churches and sees that were legitimately founded in the East um, that have been taken over by usurpers, by the schismatics. Um, those sees are legitimate, okay? They were, they were established by legitimate successors of the apostles, okay? The fact that they're not currently occupied by legitimate successors, and that's another debate for another time because it's possible that jurisdiction remains there. And that's, that's, there's an issue with that. There's a theological issue there that we could talk about, but, but the, you know, the reality is um, when Cardinal Ratzinger referred to the Eastern schismatic churches as true particular churches, that's actually correct theology because they were legitimately established and founded just because there may be usurpers sitting on the seeds of, 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 of bishops who aren't in union with the Pope. It doesn't mean that, um, the seas themselves are illegitimate, you, you see? So I would, I would add that, and I would simply say, you know, is a diocesan church, the full church, or part of the church? Well, I would ask you, do you think you're only part Catholic, or do you think you're a full that's Catholic, right? right? I mean, that's, that's right. how I look at it. They're fully Catholic. Well said. This question, John, is, it's, it's Father Gruner, God rest his soul, composed a consecration of Russia prayer that he intended for the Pope to use. I haven't read it, but do you think he composed, do you think what he composed was suitable? Well, I knew Father Gruner well. He was a dear friend of mine, and I'm not aware that he actually drafted um, a consecratory prayer for the, the Pope that he submitted to the Pope. Um, he may have done that. I'm not aware of it, so I, I, I can't comment on it, but I, I do know that Father Gruner held that the consecration ceremony um, can be quite simple. It has to be done, as Lucia said, by the Pope in union with all the bishops of the world at the same time. And whether it's in an ecumenical council or they all come to Rome, even if they do it in their own di dioceses at the same time throughout the world, it's simply the prayer of, I'm consecrating the nation of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary in union with all the bishops of the world as Our Lady requested Fatima. That probably will suffice. Now, there's going to be more prayers, of course. We're going to be begging our Lord and God the Father and the Holy Ghost and Our Lady and all the saints, you know, to, to watch over and bless the consecration. Um, but again, I'm not, I'm not aware that he, he went that far. He, he may have. Um, because he worked tirelessly, and I know he did send things to the Holy Father. I know he did send things to, to to the bishop. So hopefully he's now, you know, all praying praying for us, and he'll he'll witness the the triumph of Our Lady from heaven. Wonderful. I think we've answered this next question about the SSPX and supply jurisdiction. I mean, in some way. I mean, obviously, yeah. in a cursory fashion. And maybe if you're able to join us next week. I'm not sure if you are, if Robert mentioned that. Is that possible next yeah. week? Okay, great. Sure. Here's another question. We have a couple more. What would you say to someone who used the argument, oh, this is a classic one. St. <laughs> Athanasius, during the Arian crisis, was excommunicated multiple times, but still continued his ministry as, as a bishop, and that his example justifies any suspended cleric in today's society who wishes to continue his ministry 
without appropriate faculties. The argument was generally augmented by the claim that God's law is higher than man's. So the suspended cleric has even a duty to continue his ministry despite his suspension because of the sacramental character of his ordination. Hopefully this question makes sense. It was well written actually, it's a good question. It's a very good question. <clears throat> and you know, the answer is uh, there after Athanasius was excommunicated, he actually obeyed his excommunication and he went into exile and he began to write. He did not exercise externally the priestly ministry. He didn't ordain. He didn't consecrate bishops. These are all mythologies that people have created to justify um, the fact that their state of the contest bishops are doing things without the permission of the Holy Father and their diocesan bishops. There's no evidence of any of this. The evidence, and I've studied this, and Robert has and others have, Athanasius went into exile. You know, St. Thomas even said, you know, many years later that, you know, even if an excommunication is unlawful, you see that saintly people conform to it and obey to it until such time that God permits it to be lifted. This is exactly what Athanasius did. Uh, he, he did not consecrate bishops. He did not ordain priests contrary to the will of the bishops in the diocese that he was traveling about because he wasn't. He was an exile in a hole in the ground. So um, I think that the, the case of Athanasius is very misunderstood. Right. Well said. Very well said. And remember, Athanasius was an exile, lived in a, as, as John said, in, in a well, in a hole in the ground for six years, at least during the daytime hours, and lived in his father's own tomb for a little bit of time trying to escape, uh, escape the authorities, the civil authorities in particular. Well, well answered. Heaven forbid, someone writes, but if the Pope were to forbid the traditional Latin Mass and tell bishops to no longer allow it in their diocese, what would we do? Well, if you had an hour, maybe you could give an answer to that. <laughs> you know, I've asked, asked myself that question because it's a very difficult question. I mean, I think on the one hand, one can make an argument that under quo primum tempore, uh, um, we have a divine right to celebrate the rights that have been received and approved by the church in her perennial tradition. Uh, on the other hand, you have the question of the exercise of the pulp and the legitimate exercise of, of authority. So I think that's an extremely difficult question. Uh, I, I don't believe that'll ever happen. Uh, who knows? Um, who knows? Uh, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have these traditional masses like we do today, right? So as bad as things seem to be getting from a doctrinal and moral perspective, from a liturgical perspective, the fact that we have more Latin masses now than, than we have in 20, 25 years, Father, wouldn't you agree? I mean, that's such a, that's such a, a good sign. I, can't, I won't give a definitive answer on that, although my personal opinion is that St. Pius V has given us, the, 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 that he has declared that we have a divine right to celebrate the received and approved rights of the church. Um, that these rights have been handed down by Christ, by the apostles, uh, by sacred tradition. Uh, that's personally where I would land on it, but um, others may, may differ. It's a tough question. Well said. And I remember what Father Valentine, a good priest, friend of ours, as many of you know in the audience, uh, he always said there's no merit in worrying about uh, future contingencies that may or may not happen. So the fact is, as John said, there's great hope great signs of a revival amongst many priests even, many young priests loving the traditional Latin Mass. And when you get the Mass, doctrine is going to happen. I mean, 
people will start going back to the doctrine too. Uh, would it be a sin, this is a tough question, John, would it be a mortal sin, it states, to attend Mass at an SSPX chapel or, well, I think this is obvious, or a set of the Cantus parish? Well, we, we obviously know the say of the Cantus are, are outside the church. Those are public non-Catholics. Remember, say of the Cantus are, are manifest schismatics and heretics. And, and, and so they are public non-Catholics. And of course, it would be an objective mortal, mortal sin to, uh, you know, to attend those services. They're not, they're not Catholic services. One can't say the same thing about the society. There's this issue with irregularity in terms of canonical mission, but I, I, you certainly can't compare the two. You're talking about Catholics versus non-Catholics. Right, right. This is a question. I was wondering if, uh, if you, John, study the ecclesiology of the Eastern Orthodox churches, mm -hmm. they claim that each bishop exercises the office of Peter. Ooh, thus the Pope can't be a bishop over bishops. No, they don't claim that at, at all. Um, remember the East and, and West, they, they grew together until we had the, the great schism, but those sees, uh, apostolic sees were legitimately founded, I think, Father, uh, the only distinction was that the, 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 the patriarch bishops could uh, appoint bishops without um, pontifical mandate. I think that the Pope, in many of those cases over the history and over the centuries, so long as there was tacit approval from the Pope, they were legitimately installed, unlike in the Roman Rite or the Latin Rite, and the Pope is obviously you know, geographically closer to here, Historically, and even even in even the Roman Rite, there always wasn't pontifical mandate. That's actually a, a, more of a recent development. But I, but I think that's one distinction that comes to, to mind. I think uh, the patriarchs of the East may have had a little bit more autonomy in in how they uh, uh, appointed their uh, their successors. Um, and that's I think all I probably would say about that. I think they're saying that each bishop exercised the office of Peter. No, that's not the case. Uh, they claim to be exercising the office of, of the apostles, but again, whether you're a bishop in the East or the West, you get your jurisdiction from the Pope. Um, if the Eastern bishops don't get their jurisdiction from the Pope, then they don't have jurisdiction. Now, theologians debate, Father, whether uh, the Holy Father, you know, back a, a, a millennium ago, actually withdrew jurisdiction. Uh, during the during the, the schism, and I know that's been debated. I'm not going to get into that. Um, we know that they're objectively schismatic, um, and yet we know that Cardinal Ratzinger has said they're true particular churches because they've been legitimately established. I'll let the theologians debate whether those priests exercise ordinary jurisdiction or not, but they certainly don't claim to have the authority of Peter because Peter alone has the plenary authority. None of the bishops in the East or the West claim to, to have that right. Um, uh, the difference, of course, is that they don't claim union with Peter. And if they're not in union with Peter, they're not Catholics. Right, exactly. So I think we're, there's another question, but I think this would lead us into maybe next week's um, uh, topic. Uh, this one speaks about the difference between set of acanthus and, and set of privation, privationism. Um, so... Next, that's a big topic in itself. So tell you what, let's uh, leave off here. Uh, we'll, we'll end with a prayer and I'll uh, give you a final, final blessing and then look forward to next week. And perhaps with John giving us a real good um, 
foundation and ecclesiology, the attributes of the church, um, the marks of the church, her indefectibility, her, um, her visibility, right? Uh, the apostolic mark, that it gives us great hope even in the midst of a difficult time. And, uh, and obviously we'll hopefully fall into the, into pray to the set of Candace errors, which as John mentioned, there was a number of sort of shared errors with the Protestants that they actually had, some of the proudest Protestant founders. So we thank John very much for all that you've given us. So let's end with a prayer and then we'll hope to meet next week. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end, amen. Dominus Vobiscum, Ecum Spiritu Tuo. Benedictio Demitentis Patris et Filii et Spiritus Supervos et Maniat Semper. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Especially thank you, John, for all of your hard work. I appreciate it very much. Oh, it's my pleasure, Father. Thank you much. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye now.